I'm going to just pray again for myself real quick. Uh, so I, I invite you to pray uh, for me as I pray for me. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. God, I do thank you for this word. And I ask now that I would decrease, that you may increase, that you would speak through me, that your words would be heard, that not a single thing that you desire to do in this place would be left undone, that we would be changed. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right. So I have to, um, I have to call out <laughs> one of our visitors. I should have asked you when I was back there, but that's just not how I live my life. So one of my students is here this morning uh, from my class. Miss Jada is here with her beautiful daughters. So I just thank you for coming. Welcome. Um, yeah, so I'm excited to be with you all this morning. I'm, I'm going to preach from the, the book of Romans, and you've heard the passage. Um, Dana read that today. I'm going to be preaching from Romans 1, verses 1 to 7. Uh, and this is a letter that Paul has written or ha wrote to the church in Rome. Um, and this is a church that Paul had not visited before. And so that is really um, an important thing for us to hold in our minds. So the other letters that Paul wrote, he writes to churches um, that not only had he visited, he had planted, right? Like me, these were churches that Paul had established. Um, these were, were people and communities that knew him well, that he knew. But when he's writing this letter to this church in Rome, he's writing to a people who he doesn't necessarily know. Some of them he's met along the way, but this is not a church that, that knows him. It's also important to know about this letter that Paul writes it. Um, it comes at the beginning of all the letters in our Bible, right? It's the first thing that you read, but this was not the first letter that Paul wrote. In fact, it's one of the last letters that Paul wrote. By the time Paul is writing this letter and he's in the city of Corinth when he's doing that, he is seasoned in his ministry. He has planted churches. He's been doing this thing for a while. Um, and he's come to a time in his ministry where he can kind of sit and breathe and reflect. If you have read the New Testament at all, you know Paul's ministry was not an easy one. He didn't get to just show up and be like, oh my gosh, I am so loved everywhere that I go. And now I get to talk to you all. And right. He, he, his ministry was hard, but he's in a space where he's been able to kind of like, oh, okay, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I can rest a little and reflect. And so I think that that's why the book of Romans reads like it does. It is heavy. Paul is sort of fleshing out his doctrine, what he thinks about all manner of things. And he's laying it out in a way that he has hasn't been able to lay it out before. He's not writing to address a specific issue that's happening right now that he needs to address. He's kind of just, this is, let me, let me tell you what I know about the goodness of God. So hold that in your mind as we think about this letter. So Paul writing to this group of people in Rome, and he who doesn't know them as well. They don't know him as well. And so in these first seven verses, Paul is trying to let them know, this is who I am. And I think that that's important because it's telling us what he thinks is important to say about him. This is who I am. This is what you need to know about me. First and foremost, fresh out the gate, let me tell you about myself. 
And let me give you a little heads up about what I think about you. <laughs> so those first seven verses, it's just a greeting. It's a standard part. Like you write a letter, you say, dear who, so-and-so, right? It's the standard part of the letter. But those seven verses are deep. <laughs> There's a lot that's happening in those seven verses. Paul reflecting on who he is and what the gospel is. Another thing to know about the context before we get into what Paul wrote, because I think those seven verses hold a lot for us today, um, is who he's writing to, what's happening in this community. So this church, at the time that Paul is writing, um, it would have been a diverse church, but a predominantly Gentile church. It didn't start out that way, though. So as I said, Paul didn't start the church in Rome. And there's not a lot in the Bible about how the church in Rome started. What we know is that on the day of Pentecost, there were some Jewish people from Rome who were present, who would have seen the coming of the Holy Spirit, who were converted that day. And so it's likely that those people went back home to Rome and they spread the good news. They told people what they had experienced. And so the church in Rome was sort of birthed out of people sharing what God had done. It was born in the synagogues. It would have always been a Gentile and Jewish church. But those early Gentiles would more than likely have been God-fearers. Those were Gentiles who had um, accepted the teachings of the law, um, but they had not been circumcised. So they weren't Jewish, they were still Gentile, but they fully received um, the teachings of the, the Israelites, of the Jewish people. So this is how the church is born. Jews who have experienced the Holy Spirit and have been converted. Gentiles who had already been convinced that the, 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 the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, that this is who God is. They already believed in the one true God. And now they are starting to hear this new understanding of who this God is. This is how that church is born. This is what that community um, looks like. But because we are evil, um, the emperor at that time, in about 49 AD, Emperor Cornelius, he banished all of the Jews from Rome. And that would have been the Jewish Christians, the non-Jewish Christians. They were all banished from Rome, likely because he was irritated with some squirmish that was going on, maybe about Christ and who Christ was. So this church that was birthed in the synagogues becomes completely a Gentile church. By the time Paul writes his letter, the Jews had returned to Rome, but they had only been back for maybe a, a decade-ish or so. And so this is a very interesting community. It is a church um, that is diverse. It is a church that is predominantly Gentiles. And to this community, Paul writes to say this, let me tell you about who I am. Let me tell you about who you are. So what does Paul want to tell about who he is? Paul starts in the very beginning by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now that is something that's very easy to skim over. It's something that kind of sounds like what Paul says at the start of all of his letters, some version of like, I'm Paul, that's my name, I'm an apostle, that I'm called by Christ. But it's actually, it's, it's, it's quite different. 
So in almost every other letter that Paul wrote, he began by stating some variation of the following. Paul, an apostle or prisoner of Jesus Christ by the will or sometimes the command of God. When he had a lengthy statement about that, sometimes he just said Paul, like, or he said Paul, Timothy, whoever he was with, and he goes into it, right? But whenever he had a more lengthy statement, it was usually something along those lines. Paul, an apostle, maybe a prisoner, um, I think in a letter he might say a slave, um, but of Jesus Christ, called or commanded, excuse me, um, commanded by or the will of God. Right, called or commanded by the will of God. This is, this is kind of how that always went. And again, if you don't think about what is happening, if you just read this in your Bibles and you think, well, this is the first letter that Paul is writing and we'll just skip on through it, you can miss the significance of that. But see, those words, they pack a punch when you think about the context. He is Paul. He is a servant of Christ. He is Paul, once Saul, He's not just saying, you know, I, Paul, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. No, he says, I, once the chief persecutor of the church, I have been called to be an apostle. Once the chief persecutor of the church, I, Paul, I have been called to be an apostle. That becomes a whole different thing. I am a servant of Jesus Christ, and I have been called to be an apostle. Because of Christ, I have been transformed in a way that is so much bigger than what you will ever fully understand. That is so much bigger than what I can ever fully understand. Because of Jesus Christ, I (laughs) have been called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. In God's economy, a man who was once the biggest threat to the church can be called to be its most prolific spreader. That man was set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's very existence The fact that he is writing this letter is evidence of the fact that God is amazing (laughs) and does amazing things. It's not something you can take for granted. That's the first thing he wants to let people know about himself. He could have just said, you know, I, Paul, and Apostle. No, 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 no. Servant of Jesus Christ. Called to be an apostle because I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. He's a living example of the gospel, of the very good news that in Christ, old things do in fact become new. That because of Christ, for any one of us who is not, um, any one of us who is not God cannot view another human being and see them as unredeemable. That to do so is blasphemy. (laughs) So when you and I make determinations about who can and cannot be saved, whether those are innocent determinations, right? Like maybe you've been praying for somebody for your whole life, it feels like, and you just have not seen movement. For you to decide that it is hopeless, blasphemy. (laughs) In God's economy, no one can say that anyone 
is beyond the reach of God. I, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. This is good news. And Paul is a living witness to that good news. So what is the gospel then? What, what does it entail? What all does Paul have to say about that good news? Well, the first thing I want to say about it, we see in verse 2. He goes on to say, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. The gospel God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Now, in verses 3 to 4, he makes it really clear the connection between Jesus Christ um, and the messianic promise um, of the descendant, that, that a descendant from, the, from King David would reign forever. So he makes that, and, I'm, and it's impressive, right? Because it's just three verses. But he makes this, this connection, he fleshes that out. And this is an important connection for us. I think it would have been an even more important connection um, for the people at this time to really firmly establish that and shore it up unapologetically. Because again, this is a people who are still grappling, right, with what it means to be the church with what it means, how do we reconcile, right, um, the law and Jesus and all this stuff. Those, these are still fresh ideas and fresh topics. So it would have been really important for them. But for this morning, what I want us to pay attention to, what I want to call your attention to, is the first five words of verse two. The gospel God promised beforehand. So the title of my sermon this morning comes from um, the last verse of these opening lines, and that is, to all in Rome who are loved by God. Um, now, part of that is because, again, as I say every time, I, I lack creativity when it comes to this. But the other part is because when I read these verses, that's, that, that verse 7 just stood out to me in a way that it has not stood out to me before. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. To all in Rome who are loved by God. This is how Paul concludes that greeting section. This is how he ends the greeting um, in this letter to the Roman church. But the weight of it can only be grasped if we spend some time thinking about those first five words. The gospel God promised beforehand. So as I stated, Paul is a living embodiment. He was a living embodiment of the transformative nature of the gospel. It is, in fact, good news that God transforms us. It is, in fact, good news that this transformation is something that happens once, right? And also for all time. <laughs> that, that the transformative work of Jesus Christ doesn't end the moment we accept Jesus Christ. Yes, we become new, but he is constantly making us new. He is constantly restoring and renewing and reviving uh, and making us more to look like Jesus Christ. That is always happening, and that is good news. That work is begun by and sustained by the Holy Spirit. That is great news, but that is not the end of the story. Because it's what these verses tell us. What these verses tell us is that the good news didn't start on Calvary. The good news did not begin when our Savior was brutally executed by the state because of human sin. 
It didn't begin on the day that he went to the river and was baptized by John. It didn't begin when he was in the wilderness and overcame the enemy. And it didn't even begin on that night in Bethlehem that we are anticipating right now, right? That we are getting ready for. It didn't begin with his birth in Bethlehem. Yes, Paul makes it very clear even in these few verses, those things were the fulfillment of the gospel. But the gospel began first and foremost with a promise. A promise that is evident in every story, every poem, every prayer, every prophecy, every one of the words that makes up the thing that we call the Bible. The promise not only that God's heart is always and has always been for his people, but also that God's people includes everyone. <laughs> that God the Father has always and is always chasing after all of his people. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The fact that Paul is writing this letter to this community in Rome, to this church in Rome, is further evidence of that promise. The God-fearers were evidence of that promise. People who had already come to serve and to know the one living God. People who other folk might have looked at and said, you are not a part of that. A lot of people looked at the, at the Jewish community and said, this is an exclusive group that nobody can come in. It's just for them. And so those people's very lives was evidence that God's promise was never just to a particular people. It was for everyone all the time. That did not just begin with Jesus. It was fulfilled in Jesus. It was made complete in Jesus. The pathway became clear through Jesus, but that God's heart was for everyone was always the case. And so the question that you and I have to grapple with this morning, as we stand here on this last day of the Advent season, hoping ready, waiting for the return of our Lord, the question that you and I have to grapple with is who have we deemed unworthy of God's promise? Who have we, and when I say we, I mean we as a universal church and we as y'all who can hear me talking right now, who have we made to feel like they somehow have no part with God? I've shared this before, but when I was growing up in my little black nationalist community, um, there were people, good people, doing good work. People who loved people and loved this world that God so loved, but who could not and would not accept Jesus Christ because of the way we <laughs> have represented Jesus Christ. I often pray for my mamas and my babas, who it's still sometimes unfathomable for me to imagine them as people who will praise the name of Jesus because of all of the barriers and all of the blocks and all of the stuff that the church has put in their path. Who are we blocking <laughs> from this community? 
that's a thing that we have to grapple with. And I think that that's a thing that God is calling the church to repent from because there are people for whom we have said by our actions, by the way that we conduct ourselves, by our talk, we have said you are not welcome here. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. There is absolutely no human being who is outside the reach of the God whose grace, whose love, whose mercy, whose kindness, whose joy and peace and hope is always reaching for us. All of us. The good news is that God's promise is not new. <laughs> The good news this morning is that God is not making new promises. Now, that might not sound like good news immediately, because some of y'all might be thinking, but I, I might want a new promise. So let me explain. We serve a God who stands outside of time. Just like Jesus was not the beginning of God's promise to love all people and accept all people and reach for all people, God is not making new promises. And the reason that is good news is because everything God has promised you is already yes and amen. There are some promises that you and I have not yet walked into. There are some promises that you and I have not yet received. Christ came when Christ came for a reason. He came when he came because that was the appointed time. There are some promises that have not yet been appointed for you to hear or receive from the Lord. But God is not making new promises. And so that means every time you get a promise, you know that the Lord has spoken. It is yes and it is amen period. It is not contingent on how you feel. It is not contingent on how well you have developed, how much you have grown, how strong you think your faith is. The promise has nothing to do with you apart from the fact that the God who makes promises loves you. And it was for you from the beginning of time. God is not making new promises. And God is not changing his mind on a moment-by-moment -moment basis on the people of God. And you and I don't get to say who the people of God are. Only God gets to say who the people of God are. You and I need to live as witnesses so that the people of God can come to know that they're the people of God. Amen? <laughs> so who have we kept out? Because we are not living in a way that the people of God can come to know that they have been invited to be the people of God. God's heart is and has always been for you, for me, for everyone. You and I, like Paul, are servants of Jesus Christ, called to be witnesses of the gospel because God is good. So my sermon is brief this morning because that's the word that I have for you. But we get to receive communion today. And we get to do something, and especially during this, this season, do something that we do on a regular basis. And I know that I've said this before as well. I, I, I want us to be a people who are um, always amazed. <laughs> I want us to be a people who can be excited by the things that have become commonplace. And so today, the fact that we are sitting in this place and we are about to take communion, it might 
feel commonplace. The fact that you know Jesus already and you've been walking it with him for as long as you've been walking with him, it might feel commonplace already. But as you receive the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, my prayer is that you will be reminded of how amazing it is that a promise made before the earth was formed, that a promise that was made before you were a twinkle in your parents' eye, that that promise has resulted in you being here, that there were generations before you and there will be generations after you who will be present to the God who so loved the world that he sent his son to die for it because of a promise. Because we serve a God who keeps his promises. My hope and my prayer for you is that as you receive these elements, you will allow yourself to be amazed by that and humbled by that and renewed and restored and revived by that truth. And so, God, I thank you that you inhabit this moment. (laughs) I thank you that you inhabit this space. That you stand outside of us, outside of time, and yet at the same time, you indwell in all of it. I thank you, Lord, that we are people of your promise. We, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, have been been invited to be servants of Jesus Christ and have been called No matter how we were, how we are, we have been called and transformed and invited to be witnesses of your goodness and your love and your mercy and your kindness. And so, Holy Spirit, I do ask that you would help us to be amazed by you in these moments. That you would help us to be awed by you in these moments. That you would allow us to surrender to whatever you desire to speak or say. And whatever you desire to do in and through us. Thank you for being God. Thank you for being kind and good and faithful and righteous. And thank you for inviting us into that righteousness through Jesus Christ. Amen.